Edison Electric Institute did an analysis looking at the industry's overall capital spend and found that of that 50% spent on transmission and distribution, a fairly significant portion, almost 35% of that number, was spent on adaptation hardening and resilience capex. This is a new and emerging trend for the industry, but a very important one, as the resilience and hardening of the grid is critically important. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. Enhancing the reliability and resilience of the nation's energy grid are top priorities for the electric power industry. As the frequency and intensity of storms, wildfires, and other severe weather events continue to increase, and as cyber attacks become more sophisticated, increasing capital investment in adaptation, hardening, and resilience is vital. On today's episode, Richard McMahon, EEI's Senior Vice President of Energy Supply and Finance, We'll open the conversation by highlighting the types of investments that EEI's member companies are making in the grid. Then, Jim Schaefer, Senior Managing Director at Guggenheim Partners, will be joined by Maria Rigotti, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer at Edison International, and Drew Marsh, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer at Entergy Corporation, to discuss how electric companies, policymakers, and investors evaluate the costs and benefits of investments in adaptation, hardening, and resilience. Richard, take it away. Thank you, Brian. The electric industry is the most capital intensive industry. In 2020, we deployed $140 billion in CapEx. About half of that was on transmission and distribution. We really spent a lot of time focusing on adaptation hardening and resilience. And as part of that, Edison Electric Institute did an analysis looking at the industry's overall capital spend and found that of that 50% spent on transmission and distribution, a fairly significant portion, almost 35% of that number, was spent on adaptation hardening and resilience capex. This is a new and emerging trend for the industry, but a very important one, as the resilience and hardening of the grid is critically important. I will now hand over the discussion to Jim Schaefer, who's an industry leader and uh, a member of our leader of our Wall Street Advisory Group. Uh, to discuss with Maria and Drew, who are industry-leading CFOs on this important topic. Jim? Thank you, Richard. So uh, there's going to be three areas that I address here today. And I'll start out with the first one, which is what are the risks associated with AHR investment? Perhaps regulatory, perhaps customer expectations. Um, I'll take that question first and then turn things over to Maria for some comments and then Drew. So Look, in my mind, the primary risks are twofold. One, political, voter, consumer expectations that the grid serve the needs of an advanced economy and now is a a huge area of concern. Um, We're going to increasingly rely on the grid, as Richard points out, as we electrify transportation. Um, We estimate, and, and others as well, that as much as $600 billion in transmission investment alone by 2050 is necessary to bring the grid into um, a zone that meets the need of uh, transportation, uh, current needs today, and also reliability needs. 
We're also changing the generation mix towards renewables and batteries, and we estimate as much as $500 billion are needed for batteries alone in the next 10 years. So I'm adding on to what you said, Richard. We also appear to be experiencing more extreme and costly events, fire events, weather events. The grid has to be made safe and more reliable. So all of this has to happen soon, and people expect it to happen now. And really, the, the issue is this costs a lot, and it's going to take a lot of time to change um, infrastructure. So at the heart of all of this, and this is the second point, is state regulation. It's going to be key. It has to be the case that states provide the right frameworks to allow for consistent and significant equity and debt investment. Sound rate making policy includes, and these aren't the only examples, but a long-term framework, appropriate and timely recovery of, of invested dollars with a forward view on supporting utilities as they change their infrastructure. And that, again, could be transmission, it could be software changes, it could be generation mix, it can be batteries. A lot of it's new technology. So in addition to that, state support, there's also some federal support um, around new tech, and I'll get to that later. But a key underlying point, besides timely recovery, is also appropriate return on capital. I'm not going to name names, but some states, and especially states with elected officials, play political football with critical infrastructure. And fundamentally, this is not helpful in terms of addressing the customer expectations and then also investor expectations. So state regulation really sits at the heart of this topic um, in the eyes of investors. On the federal level, bipartisan support is going to be necessary to move the federal infrastructure bill along, which holds great promise um, in terms of supporting new technologies and also transmission. So that's the Wall Street view. And I'd say uh, probably best uh, for Maria to pick up and then for Drew. So Maria, turn things over to you. Sure, thanks, Jim. And, and you know, I think a lot of what um, I'm gonna comment on is probably a reflection of what you just said. I think if you pull way back and you think about the risks, you've highlighted a number of potential risks, but first and foremost, I think the greatest risk lies with just not addressing the need. And we, we see the issue everywhere. We see wildfires in California, certainly, but, across the country, things like flooding and hurricanes. And I think while people are acknowledging the risk, there has been a tendency for folks to think that it's okay, we have time to address things, but I don't really think there is that time. And so I think the risk starts with the perception. I think from a regulatory and legislative perspective, that shrinking time horizon really means that we need to ensure cohesive policies. And, and that's to authorize investment, but really cohesive po policies also to ensure that there are appropriate incentives to promote customer adoption of things like transportation and building electrification. But also we need policies that ensure that the planning and siting and permitting requirements that are necessary for many of these projects, some of which you mentioned, you know, evolve so that the project lead times can shrink. In fact, Edison International just released a white paper and we're calling it Mind the Gap, and it dives into a lot of that in more detail. I think you know, speaking to the state regulatory and legislative policies that, that you just mentioned, uh, Jim, I think in California, over, over the years, policies have evolved to try and support all of this. You know, if you think way back in the 70s about energy efficiency and now you think and you roll forward to renewable portfolio standards and things like that, um, there has been a lot of work, but we have to keep after it in a holistic way across many different agencies and with, you know, legislators and regulators. 
you know, so much, so much of what SCE is spending is really aimed at AHR and it's to support the safety of the communities we serve. But the other area that's really important is reliability. And I think that reliability needs to be an important consideration. It needs to be front and center because I think that relates to the customer expectations item that you referred to, and that could create risk, right? As more of the economy is electrified to meet GHG emissions reductions goals, and with more and more dependence on electricity, you know, everything from the fuel for the vehicle to how you cook your meals, reliability is going to be key. I think in the long run, certainly greater electrification will help with affordability, but we do have to couple that with the reliability focus, because if we don't do that, there's a risk that customers and regulators will lose patience, and that will slow progress, and what we need right now is progress. Drew, what are your thoughts on that? I totally agree with what Maria is saying, and, and Jim, you know, sort of following up on your comments as well, you know, the, the idea of reliability is absolutely critical in that whole conversation, and it extends beyond just sort of transmission and distribution um, back into generation and diversity of supply and, and all the resources that you need in order to make sure that you can supply customers 24-7. So, you know, at Intergy, we've been investing a lot in our transmission and distribution network to, to, uh, to help for storms. Uh, of course, we just had Hurricane Ida, uh, which was you know, heavily chronicled in the media nationally. Uh, but we put nearly $10 billion into those T&D assets uh, over the last five years, and that's resulted in 20 to 25% of our system being what you might consider to be hardened. Uh, but that's not good enough because the whole thing isn't hardened. And so I don't know that we are necessarily achieving resiliency uh, just yet. Uh, but you can see that there is a there is a difference. Um, you know, the investments we've made are to newer, more modern standards, or they exceed them, you know, with an expectation that there's going to be, uh, you know, continued climate change, continued evolution of customer expectations. Uh, and in the areas where Ida hit, you know, there are combinations of new assets and old assets. And on the same line, you might have both, uh, where, you know, less than 1% of the infrastructure that's of the newer standard was impacted. Uh, and even that was impacted by things that are very hard to control, like a barge breaking loose and, and floating in a flood and, and hitting a transmission tower, um, which actually happened. Um, or, uh, and, or I should say that's compared to the expectations for our older infrastructure, where over 50% of that may have been destroyed on the same line, where less than 1% of the new stuff uh, was located. So. You know, there are investments that we are making as an industry, and, and we have to respond to all the challenges that, uh, that Jim laid out, um, you know, as expectations continue to evolve, but we are making progress. But the final thing I'll say on, on this particular question, I think the biggest risk um, to add to what Maria was talking about, the failure to, to act is, you know, a failure to get all of our stakeholders aligned around where do we want to go? What are our expectations um, as a community? You know, as what are our expectations around climate change? What are we willing to invest in, in order to meet those expectations? And there is a lot of alignment uh, between us and all these stakeholders uh, that are involved. Uh, um, you know, certainly utilities want to invest to meet the challenges that that we are talking about, and. We need to get to accepted standards to allow us to 
to figure out where we should invest and how we should invest in order to, to meet those expectations going forward. Okay, great. Thanks, Drew. And thanks, Maria. So I'll move on to the second area. And um, again, I'll answer my own questions that are posed here and then turn things over to Maria and Drew. So are these risks addressable? With increased economy-wide electrification, will the reliance benefits of AHR investment be great enough to offset the cost impacts on customers? So these risks are absolutely addressable and the benefits are tangible and worthwhile. Investors understand the needs of the future electric utility grid and they understand that these needs are immediate as I stated previously, as we all stated. The risks are best addressed and you know, this is just a banker with my own editorial, so Drew and Maria probably know better than I and others. But in my mind, the risks are best addressed through better communication and understanding between federal and state politicians, regulators, and the respective utilities. There's other constituents obviously involved as well in that equation. But in the end, establishing the consistent and credit supportive mechanisms to allow for investors to get behind the future wave of investment necessary to achieve the goals that we've outlined is really, is really key here. And utilities that are in more risk-prone areas must fundamentally change their infrastructure profile. So to get right to the heart of it, there's certain areas in our country where you know, the topic that we're talking about here is of greater need than other areas. And obviously, you know, California, Louisiana, Texas are examples, and there's other areas as well. Um, as an example, undergrounding lines um, while costly, um, allows for significant risk profile change. Maria, Edison, your company, and also Drew and others, while that, those steps are very expensive, it's very necessary. And when you look at the cost of some of the California wildfires, which have run in the tens of billions of dollars, having that ongoing exposure is far more costly than taking the step to invest in lines that are undergrounded. And that is expensive for consumers. And there's always a concern about the impact to ratepayers. But at the end of the day, somebody's going to have to pay for you know, the events that unfold if you don't change infrastructure. So I think investors in Wall Street understand this really well. Uh, Maria, do you want to pick up? Sure. Thanks, Jim. Uh, a lot of comments that hit close to home for California, I guess. I do think that the benefits of AHR investments are undeniable. And you know, kind of picking back up first on, on some of the comments that Drew made, you know, SCE began several rate cases ago to focus on that need for enhanced reliability. And we know that that's intertwined with resiliency. I mean, even now as we grapple with wildfire risk, we're hearing from regulators and customers that SCE must find ways to not only enhance the resiliency of the grid, but also to minimize customer disruption and to do all of that safely. And I think you, you, know, you referred to something, Jim, just now about the, the cost trade-offs between the investment in infrastructure versus the cost of an event when it occurs. And I think that was frankly one of the points we made um, in our general rate case that was just decided. That trade-off, it may look expensive to invest in infrastructure, but the alternative is much, much more expensive. And I think if we're gonna think about that, you know, companion piece about affordability, I don't wanna lose sight of the fact that broader electrification will actually reduce energy costs for customers while simultaneously addressing these environmental and adaptation objectives. You know, SCE did an analysis um, and found that energy as a share of wallet will actually go down by a third by 2045 as electrification increases. 
And that means, you know, we've made a lot of investments in hardening the grid and the like. Earlier this year, the California Public Utilities Commission actually convened an affordability en banc. And there were definitely concerns in the near term regarding rate increases. There were definitely a, a, there was definitely discussion around a range of topics that might address those near-term pressures, everything from uh, securitization to customer-funded self-insurance to talking about cost shifts that happen uh, through distributed generation tariffs. But it was ultimately acknowledged by the commission and the other participants that electrification will be the most affordable path forward as we pursue the needed climate objectives, as we harden the grid, as we make it more resilient. So I do think that those sorts of risks are addressable and that the investment can and will continue. But what's gonna be really important is for utilities to continue to communicate with customers because we have to make it clear that while the electric bill is increasing, overall energy affordability is improving. And in fact, the safety of the communities is improving. I don't know, Drew, your thoughts on that. Oh, I agree with that 100%. I mean, when you are making the business case uh, for this, you have to be able to consider the community impacts. Um, and, and those community impacts are where a lot of the value is for the case. Um, you know, there are a number of other things that you can think through uh, as well. You know, the evolution of climate, for example, in terms of the frequency and intensity of storms for us uh, is, you know, where we might have had an expectation a few years ago of of, uh, you know, storms, you know, so, somewhat infrequently, clearly, you know, climate change is a potential risk for us, and we could face more frequent, more intense storms. Um, and so that changes the business case, uh, you know, that technologies are improving uh, in terms of what you can deploy, you know, the standards that we have today for transmission towers, for example, you know, they, they are much better and stronger, um, and there's better ways to put them in. Um, so those are improving uh, the business case, um, you know, and, and, you know, thinking about some of the things that Jim was talking about in terms of changing the risk profile for the business, that's important for investors, uh, certainly from a credit perspective. Um, and that also fits into the business case. So you start talking about your capital structure requirements and, and the, the ability to change those based on the risk profile, uh, those things fit into the business case as well. Um, and then that last piece that I mentioned a minute ago around, you know, getting standards, um, you know, 100% reliability is probably not an achievable goal. When you have a Category 5 or near Category 5 hurricane come ashore, uh, it's going to create damage. And there's not a lot you can do about that. Um, what you can do is work to make your system more resilient so that you can get your community up and running uh, much quicker. Uh, and that helps lower the cost of recovery um, because you have fewer workers at higher pay rates um, and you don't have to have the same amount of logistics and it all happens much faster. So it's much less costly for customers uh, in that environment. So all of those things will factor into into the business case, but you know, going back to Maria's point, that that piece on the community impact, um, the cost to the community uh, is the is a key driver. Okay. Well, thank you, Drew. Thank you, Maria. So, getting to the last question, how do we finance these risks? And I'll pick this up again and then turn things over to Maria and Drew. So, 
I've, I've never been more bullish. And I think everybody around the electric space has never been more bullish than where we are today. So while there are challenges um, around some of the topics uh, here, so the, the size of dollars needed, you know, issues with state regulation or trying to get state, state regulation to the right place, trying to marry up customer expectations with the reality that these investments take a long time uh, to fulfill, takes a long time to deploy the infrastructure. At the end of the day, this industry has never had a greater set of opportunities than what lies ahead of it. And, and I think investors clearly understand, whether it's traditional utility investors, um, outside generalist investors, you know, clean tech funds, and people understand that the electric space holds the key to greening our planet. And while reliability is sort of part of that, um, it's, it's really, at the end of the day, probably an industry that has more growth potential than it's ever had before. So there's more than enough dollars available to address the AHR needs of the industry. Um, really, the key here is having the right frameworks in place, as I've been saying, as, as Maria and Drew have said as well, the right um, state and federal frameworks in place to allow for consistent, stable investments. And we estimate that within the next several years, uh, the vast majority of funds will have um, very clear mandates to orient towards clean investments and AHR investing fits that bill. So really this has nothing to do with the availability of dollars, but rather the frameworks that allow for debt investments to be put to work. So marrying up the opportunity with the challenges really involves better communication with all uh, the parties that are involved in the regulated utility space. So those are my comments. Uh, Maria? agree with you that, there, that the framework, the regulatory framework is really important in terms of investment. I think there's a lot that could also be said about maybe the role of tax policy and grants and things like that. But it's actually going to, I was thinking about this in a slightly different way and in terms of the areas where identifying additional funding sources could actually be impactful. When I think about investing in resiliency and adaptation, you know, certainly we have investments that we can make today and they could be financed in the normal course that would have a big impact on AHR. But we also need to be thinking about the new technologies that might be necessary and the cost of the R&D to help ensure that the improvements continue and that the new approaches are or become cost-effective. And I think there's definitely a role that federal and state programs can play in terms of providing R&D support for things like carbon capture or building electrification or even you know, the more nascent zero or low carbon fuels. I think there's also a role that federal and state policy can play to reduce barriers to EV adoption because we know that that's really important um, in order to get to GHG emissions goals. I think another important avenue in terms of thinking about financing risk mitigation is really support for individuals and homeowners. You know, resiliency relies on customers and communities as well. So the funding for things like weatherization and home hardening and defensible space, I think that's all really, really important. The approach to adaptation and climate change needs to involve all stakeholders. And so I think federal programs and policies and state programs and policies also need to support all of the stakeholders. And then maybe thinking about it from another angle, we can also ask whether there are different types of spending that could or should be part of an IOU's capital program, because overall that avenue will yield like the lowest cost feasible approach to meet resiliency and environmental objectives. So 
you know, traditional things like wildfire mitigation certainly fit the bill, but I'm really thinking about things that are less tradition, traditional that ultimately will help achieve the climate objectives. So as an example, you know, SCE has a really large transportation electrification investment program. It's aimed at the grid, but it's also aimed at systems on the customer side of the meter. And we have about 50% of the investment focused on disadvantaged communities. And I think that's one more important point. We have to make sure that the investments that we're making and the clean energy transition itself is not only affordable, but equitable. And I think when we think about financing, we have to think about that as well. And so what's appropriate um, for the IOU to undertake? Drew, I don't, I don't know where you, what you're thinking about in terms of this. Well, I, I agree with that, particularly that last point. Um, you know, and I think it goes to you know, some of the business case items that we discussed in the, in the previous question in terms of where do you focus your dollars and the ability to you know, work with the community to identify where those investments ought to go uh, is, a, is a critical path uh, to getting consensus and achieving the kind of regulatory outcomes that you need uh, that, that Jim was referring to. So you know, we like to talk about you know, sort of two extremes in an approach of you know, sort of break fix where you know the storm comes and you build it back to a new standard. Um, and that's the way you approach it until the storm comes along again. That's really expensive because of all the costs associated with you know sort of reacting to the storm. You know, that's a, a much more expensive way, you know, to put everything up in a huge hurry, particularly when you know communicates uh, communities are devastated and there's no place for workers to live and you basically have to build new communities on the spot um, to house thousands of workers to, to pay them at storm rates to, to restore the grid. Um, but the, the other extreme is, you know, sort of the gold plating where, you know, you go and you harden everything um, and you make sure that, you know, nothing can happen um, on, on any level or do your best uh, to do that. That's extremely expensive. Um, sort of working to target uh, in between that is, is, uh, is the best path. And it gives you the opportunity to do the kind of things that, that you're talking about, Maria, where you know, you, we can focus on what's important to the community, make sure that it's equitable uh, across uh, our community and, and get to the outcomes that everybody can agree on uh, to, to move forward. Uh, in terms of the financing piece of it, you know, we break it. We break it up into sort of thinking about it proactively and reactively. Um, you know, proactively, it's it's about making sure that you have enough liquidity. You know, working with retail regulators to do things like fund storm reserves. Uh, um, you know, working with retail regulators to uh, put a plan in place to make those proactive investments and make sure that those investments uh, can attract capital and and protect the credit uh, and financial integrity of the of the utility. Um, and that could mean investment plans with special rate structures or other things that, that everybody can agree on. That's, and the more you can do of that proactive investment, the better it becomes on the reactive side, because the reactive side is, is a lot more challenging. That's the post-storm uh, reaction, and you have to fund the cost of the float of the repairs until you can get to a regulatory process, which could be quite expensive. There is you know, as Maria, I know you know, there's no insurance for transmission and distribution lines. You cannot get that. You haven't been able to get that for years. 
Uh, the last vestiges of that got wiped out with Katrina, you know, 16 years ago. And, you know, the, to the extent that there is risk in our, our ability to recover those costs, uh, there is financial risk in the utility uh, from a credit perspective. And there are tools like securitization. Uh, we can build to new standards. You know, we're working on on and off balance sheet options for our customers. Uh, there's practical limits ultimately to securitization, but but there are tools to to manage to that reactive outcome. The best tool, of course, though, is is to be on the proactive side, uh, where you work with all the stakeholders to get to an outcome that uh, we can all agree to uh, to lower the cost uh, of reacting to any future storms. Okay, so another question. Are IOUs best positioned to raise and deploy the capital needed to address AHR needs while balancing costs of consumers and comparing that to public power's um, approach to this topic? So I'll start out. Um, at the end of the day, the capital markets are much more broad um, in terms of the depth and breadth um, of financing tools available to the IOU universe versus municipalities. There is a big scale difference between IOUs and, and munis. Um, and so therefore, the capital base um, available to IOUs is, is much greater than that for, than for municipalities. Um, so that's an initial uh, observation that I'd make here, the Wall Street perspective. Uh, Maria, do you want to pick up, please? Sure. Um, you know, it's an interesting question, and I think I'll, I'll just piggyback on your comments on scale. I mean, if you think about the amount of investment that's going to be required, scale will be important. You know, the IOUs obviously have a larger scale. I think when you think about the types of work that will be, need, that will be needed to ensure the safety of the communities, being disaggregated and, and doing it all, all on a, a muni by muni basis, I think would be very difficult. The approaches have to be integrated. And as you pile on more and more disparate companies, you're going to have scenes in the system. I think another aspect of this is just, you know, sort of where are we in terms of, for example, cyber. We haven't talked about that, but cyber is a really big issue for the industry. And does a larger scale organization have a better chance of making those investments appropriately? And remember, anything that we do on the AHR side, we really do have to be focused on the cyber outcomes as well. Drew? Yeah, thanks, Jim. And, and just Picking up where Maria was, you know, on cyber, I think that also applies to other technologies, the ability for IOUs to pick up, adapt, and deploy newer technologies uh, is going to be advantageous for an IOU versus a muni. And then I would say that that scale uh, component, the size of your balance sheet, is, is critical for proactive uh, investments, but it's also important for reacting to when the storm comes. You know, whenever Ida came, uh, we had 26,000 workers out in the field to restore uh, across a large area. And we were able to coordinate that whole thing. When you're smaller, it's harder to access the resources, first of all. And secondly, it's, it's harder to coordinate. And so having the size and scale is really important when you're responding to uh, events that are inevitable uh, out there. Uh, so I think it, it can make a difference in the reactive space as well. well once again, thank you, uh, Drew. Thank you, Maria. Uh, Richard, I'm going to turn things back over to you now. Great. Thanks, Jim, Maria, and Drew for an excellent discussion. I'm sure with your leadership and that of your colleagues throughout the industry, we're really up to the challenge of deploying needed 
adaptation, hardening, and resilience capital, as well as the OPEX, which you really haven't talked about, but certainly goes along with it. And that concludes our discussion today. I want to again thank uh, EEI and all the participants for their excellent discussion. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.